Good morning. Our top stories, former President Trump surrenders for booking in Georgia. We have analysis on his 2020 election case and historic mugshot. The House Judiciary Committee thinks the Fulton County DA's 2020 election investigation has ventured too far into federal territory. Now they are investigating her motives. Maui County is suing Hawaiian Electric. It's accusing the utility company of causing the recent wildfires through negligence. We have more on that lawsuit. A state lawmaker says it's hypocritical to house illegal immigrants and not the state's homeless. We zoom in on how Massachusetts is responding to the migrant influx. The Department of Justice says SpaceX is discriminating against refugees and asylum seekers, and it's taking the rocket maker to court. And two brothers from Idaho add a dash of style and luxury to their old grain storage silos with some amazing results. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Today is Friday, August 25th, and our top news is that former President Trump surrendered to authorities at the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, Georgia, last night. Trump went through the booking process, and now his mugshot is everywhere on social media and the Internet. NTD's Melina Wisecup is on the scene in front of the jail where Trump surrendered. Melina, can you tell us what happened last night? Good morning, Kevin. Yeah, so the former president was here at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia to surrender to those 13 charges. He arrived at around 7.30 p.m. last night. The process was rather quick. He was in and out. He was released on a consent bond, which included strict restrictions on what he can say, especially on social media. The district attorney says this is meant to prevent witness intimidation. He was released on a $200,000 cash bail. His mugshot was taken, and as you mentioned, it is all over social media. Of course, the world is looking at this. I do want to mention that there was a fake mugshot that was spreading around right after Trump arrived in the jail, but then since since then the real mugshot has been released. Now it's interesting to note where the former president entered the jail. It was not right here behind me. This is where all of the supporters gathered since 10 a.m. yesterday morning to show their support for him. This is also where the majority of the media has gathered. He entered on another street about half a mile down the road where there were very few media outlets present, not many people over there, so that was very interesting. The former president did speak to reporters briefly as he left before boarding his airplane. We'll show you what he said. Watch. I really believe this is a very sad day for America. This should never happen. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or many others. When you uh, have that great freedom to challenge, you have to be able to, otherwise you're going to have very dishonest elections. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. And that goes with the other ones, too. What they're doing is election interference. They're trying to interfere with an election. There's never been anything like it in our country before. This is their way of campaigning. And this is one instance, but you have three other instances. It's election interference. 
And so with regards to that mugshot, we know a photo is worth a thousand words. The former president actually took it upon himself to post his own mugshot on Twitter, making his first appearance back on Twitter. And he's already using it to his advantage, selling merchandise with this mugshot on it. It will be interesting to see how both sides of the aisle use this mugshot in their campaigns as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Now, as for his legal case moving forward, well, we know just before he surrendered yesterday, he did report place his lead lawyer, but he has not yet tried to file to move his case to federal court, which some of the other officials have done. Mark Meadows, Jeffrey Clark, they were acting officials at the time that these actions took place, which is the grounds on which they have tried to move their cases to federal court. Trump has not done that, so it will be interesting to see how his legal defense team moves forward here. Now, he also did uh, oppose the October 23rd trial date that was set by the judge for one of his co-defendants. He came out yesterday, his lawyers did, and filed to separate himself from that October 23rd trial date and any other dates that come up like this, any other uh, uh, quick trials that come up, speedy trial requests that come up from any of the other co-defendants. Now, all of the co-defendants do have until today to surrender. Most of them have done so. Jeffrey Clark, the former DOJ official, has just done so this morning but there are just a handful of people still left to surrender, and they have until today to do so. Kevin? Well, thank you very much for that detailed update, Melina. And Trump's Fulton County jail records were posted online. The records list the 13 different charges against Trump. They include racketeering, a charge typically reserved for organized crime. It also shows Trump's inmate number, how much time he spent inside the jailhouse, roughly 22 minutes, as well as his hair color, height, and weight. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan expressing concerns about whether the Georgia prosecutor's recent indictment was politically motivated. He wants answers to several questions about D.A. Fannie Willis's investigation. NTD's legal correspondent has more on the letter he sent to Willis. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has indicted a former U.S. president, and the House Judiciary Committee is now investigating her motives. And here's why. In a five-page letter, Chairman Jim Jordan said Willis's indictment involved substantial federal interests, and he was concerned about whether her indictment was politically motivated. He said your office purportedly sent a letter to several Republican officials in Georgia requesting that they preserve documents relating to a matter of high priority that your office was investigating. Yet you did not bring charges until two and a half years later at a time when the campaign for the Republican presidential nomination is in full swing. In the letter, he points out other concerns. Willis launched a campaign fundraising website highlighting her election investigation just four days before the indictment was announced. The forewoman of the special grand jury went on a media tour bragging about her excitement to potentially subpoena Trump and swear him in. The Fulton County Court clerk released the indictment before the grand jury voted on it. Jordan says in the letter that he isn't surprised that people believe the prosecution is designed to interfere with the 2024 election. Willis requested a March 4, 2024 trial date, which he says is the day before the Super Tuesday presidential primary. It's also eight days before the Georgia presidential primary. What are the federal interests involved? Jordan lists several, including using state criminal law to regulate the actions of federal officers carrying out official duties, 
charging a former U.S. president, and whether she consulted with DOJ Special Counsel Jack Smith. To get answers to these concerns, Jordan requested all documents and communications related to her investigation, including communications with the DOJ, Smith, and other federal executive branch officials. Trump's former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and former Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Clark have both filed motions to have the case removed to a federal court. They also wanted the federal judge to block their state arrests. But the judge refused, saying there was no precedent for that. Willis strongly opposed the removal request, saying their arguments were baseless and meritless. The judge has scheduled a hearing for Monday. Meanwhile, Jordan gave Willis until 10 a.m. on September 7 to reply. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Now we get some insight into Trump's Georgia case from our next guest. We're going to look at some congressional pushback to DA Fannie Willis and the October 2023 trial date she is requesting. Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel for the National Legal and Policy Center, joins us live. Paul, it's always great to hear from you. As we mentioned, the House Judiciary Committee is looking into DA's motivations here for prosecuting Trump. So what are they looking for? Well, they're looking for what coordination that maybe Fannie Willis uh, had uh, with, with Jack Smith, who's the special counsel. I mean, it's clear, as we saw in your piece here, that this whole thing is politically motivated. Keep in mind that uh, Jim Jordan also uh, sent a similar letter to Alvin Bragg, uh, the New York uh, City prosecutor there, who has an indictment against Trump as well. This was on the so-called hush money payments. So there's clearly a legislative purpose here uh, that Jim Jordan's trying to uncover to see what coordination is. And when, when Fannie Willis was asked uh, the other day, has she been talking to Jack Smith? She, she ducked uh, the question. So it's clear that there is something going on here and it's politically motivated as all these uh, indictments are against uh, President Trump. Is this a type of case that should be tried at the district level? Well, there are uh, a couple of motions to have this transferred uh, to the federal court. Uh, there's a federal law 28 USC 1422 that says if a federal official is indicted in state court, they can have it transferred to the federal court where you have a better jury pool and where, where you have a federal judge who can adjudicate some of these constitutional issues in a more appropriate manner. And uh, there is going to be a hearing on Monday uh, about this. So it's going to be interesting whether uh, the, the federal court takes this over or whether we're going to see the spectacle of two trials, one in the federal court uh, and one in the state court. Very interesting. Now, let's talk about that trial date. October is just two months from now, and the judge has granted Willis's request to have the trial on that date for one defendant who asked for a speedy trial, and this is a date that Trump has opposed. Do you think this is reasonable for all 19 defendants? No, it's not reasonable, uh, but the Ken Chesbro, the attorney who was indicted, has a right under the Speedy Trial Act uh, to call uh, Fannie Willis's bluff and say, hey, I'm entitled to a speedy trial. Let's get it on. And so uh, uh, he has a right to have that. And, and in that case, what may happen is there might be uh, a separation uh, of uh, Ken Cheesebro's uh, trial from the other defendants. Uh, I think uh, that uh, there's a lot of preparation that needs to be done. I don't see this case being tried uh, even in, in March uh, of next year uh, before Super Tuesday and, and the other elections. So uh, it remains to be seen here. We'll be having some 
hearings in the next uh, week or two that will decide when these trial dates will take place. And Paul, Trump suggests that his actions stem from his right to free speech. Let's watch this clip of Trump on the tarmac in Georgia after he being booked. If you challenge an election, you should be able to challenge an election. I thought the election was a rigged election, a stolen election, and I should have every right to do that. As you know, you have many people that you've been watching over the years do the same thing, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Stacey Abrams or many others. So Hillary Clinton had questioned legitimacy the outcome of her 2016 contest with Trump, alleging Russian interference and GOP voter suppression. Right. Is that what Trump's referring to? And was there any differences here, considering that Trump's team actually did arrange alternate electors? Uh, not much difference at all. Uh, both both Hillary Clinton and, and Stacey Abrams, when she ran for governor, she said that her election was rigged and it's illegitimate. Uh, so they're making the same arguments. It's just that Trump... Uh, also took a step further and petitioned state officials to take a look at this. This is a violation of his First Amendment rights uh, to petition your government for redress of grievances. Uh, the government can deny your petition, but they cannot criminalize it as they are doing here. And to have an alternate slate of electors, there's precedent for that in Hawaii 1960 with the presidential race between Nixon uh, and John F. Kennedy. Uh, Nixon originally won. John F. Kennedy had an alternate slate of electors because they did a recount and then and found out that he won. And so they had a contingency. So John F. Kennedy got those three electors from Hawaii. So there is precedent for this kind of getting an alternate slate of electors. They're not fake electors. They're just an alternate slate of electors. So by that logic, it seems that Trump is paying the price for simply being prepared. Now, why do you think Trump swapped lawyers in the Georgia case? Well, uh, you know, he's been doing, uh, assembling his legal team uh, over the last, you know, uh, six months or so with various cases. I think perhaps this attorney that he has now is is uh, probably more of an expert in, in, in Georgia law. He's he's a, a fighter. I mean, th this is nothing new here where, where there might be different strategies and Trump may be more comfortable with one or the other, but all of his, all of his attorneys I've been excellent attorneys, and I know a few of them as well. Well, thank you so much for that analysis. Paul Kaminar, the lead counsel for the National Legal and Policy Center, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Heading into break now, the county of Maui accuses Hawaiian Electric of causing the recent wildfires that decimated the island. We have more on the lawsuit against Hawaii's largest utility, Massachusetts is spending millions to house migrant families, this while Bostonians are living on the streets. We hear from a state representative who says some of the state's homeless are being shut out due to illegal immigrants getting priority, so stay tuned for that story. Welcome back. Turning now to the aftermath of Hawaii's wildfires, the county of Maui is suing Hawaiian Electric. It alleges the power company's negligence caused the recent fires that decimated the island and is seeking unspecified civil damages. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the lawsuit filed yesterday. The lawsuit against Hawaiian Electric and its subsidiaries alleges the company failed to maintain its electrical system and power grid during heavy windstorms that resulted in three separate fires in Lahaina and Kula on August 8th. 
The suit alleges Hawaiian Electric acted negligently by not shutting down its equipment, despite warnings from the National Weather Service of high winds and temperatures. The lawsuit claims the destruction could have been avoided had the company taken precautions and that it had a duty to properly maintain and repair its electric transmission lines and other equipment including utility poles, as well as a responsibility to keep vegetation properly trimmed and maintained to prevent accidents. Witness accounts and video indicated that sparks from power lines ignited fires as utility poles snapped in the winds driven by a passing hurricane. Early estimates of the damage have been pegged as high as $5 billion for the Lahaina fire. The lawsuit asks for an unspecified amount in damages to compensate for losses sustained by the county during the fires, including property damage and the cost of fire suppression. The suit came after the utility company's shareholders filed their own lawsuit in a San Francisco federal court earlier Thursday. They say the company failed to disclose important information about its wildfire prevention and safety protocols. The company has lost more than half of its market value since the fires. Hawaiian Electric said in a statement, It's very disappointed that Maui County chose this litigious path while the investigation is still unfolding. Around a thousand people are still missing, and at least 115 people have been confirmed dead. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Turning now to energy production, less domestic oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. The Biden administration is reportedly giving out fewer leases in order to protect whales. Here are the details. Oil companies are preparing to buy leases from the Biden administration next month. In order to drill, they need to lease the land and then apply for a permit. This sale is for areas in the Gulf of Mexico, but they won't be able to buy quite as much as they thought. Bloomberg reports the government will make available 67 million acres. That's 6.4 million acres, or almost 10 percent less than the initial proposal. Biden promised to end offshore drilling many times in his campaign for president, but the sale is required by the Inflation Reduction Act. The Biden administration in July came to an agreement with environmental groups. It agreed to sell 11 million acres less in order to protect a whale species known as Rice's whale. The American Petroleum Institute at the time commented, saying there's no evidence to warrant this far-reaching ban on operations after extensive data collections. It says the Biden administration is blocking American energy. These leases are scheduled to go on auction at the end of September, the final sale required by the Inflation Reduction Act. Outrage over illegal immigrants given housing priority over homeless in Massachusetts. Bostonians are living on the streets in the encampment called Mass and Cass, while the state is spending millions to house migrant families. We hear from a lawmaker about what he is calling hypocrisy. Joining me now is Massachusetts State Representative Peter Durant. Thank you so much for your time today, Representative Durant. Emergency shelters in your state are becoming overwhelmed, and there's an increased demand for temporary housing, and this is stemming largely from illegal immigration. So what is the status of Massachusetts' sheltering program right now? So at this point, we are, because Massachusetts is a right to shelter state, we are required to house those who come into the state uh, legally or illegally who, who are in need of housing, we're required to put them up. So at this point, we are, as a state, have commandeered about 25, uh, and, and the number grows every day, but we've commandeered about 25 hotels throughout the state in which we are now housing a lot of the illegal immigrants who have come across the border. And do you sense that constituents, first in your region, are now in favor of supporting this financially? You know, it's, um, it, it is a mixed uh, review that we're seeing. 
for the most part, people are very frustrated because one of the things that's been happening here, of course, is that we have our own homeless uh, problem here in Massachusetts. We have a, uh, a very famous road in, in Boston, Mass and Cass, in which we have homeless tents just set up, but yet these people are not getting the shelter that they require. And why um, is that? We, do, do they, do well, they have a desire to seek that out? You know, I, I, and I think there's some, I, I think there's some kind of ambiguity there because I think it's hard to get some people off the streets who don't want to, don't want to go off the streets. You know, maybe they have substance abuse, mental health issues, um, and the likes that we're seeing. So sometimes it's hard to get them off the streets and get them the help they need. But for those that do, they're being shut out of the process, and, and it's been a long time for them. So in light of this, retired Massachusetts State Trooper Daryl and Haywood said that if Governor Healy does provide humanitarian support, and if that's her priority to these migrant families, then why aren't they taking care of their own? So what are your thoughts here? Well, right. It's, a, it's, it's really hypocritical to say that uh, we need to help those who are homeless and yet only help those who are coming into the state uh, as part of this migrant uh, border crossing. So that's all we can see right now. And, and, and even, you know, at this point, our, our governor is saying, well, we should, uh, if you have rooms in your house, you should start housing families and housing these migrants. Yet this mass and cast uh, tent city has been there for years. So no help has been given. So it's really kind of something you scratch your head about. And housing migrants in private citizens' homes, where would that end? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know, to be quite honest with you. I don't know how many people in the, the administration hasn't um, divulged how many people have given up their homes or have given up rooms in their homes. So we don't know where that ends, and we don't even know what the end game is here. Um, I, I think we've seen that the, the Healy administration has tried to move a little bit further and, and push for work permits and try to push to assimilate. And so now we're, we've gone from a, a, a migrant crisis to just this, this immigration crisis where we want to assimilate them in. And Do you think that those work permits are a viable solution? You know, it, 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 honestly, I think it's a mixed, uh, a mixed bag here because in Massachusetts, like a lot of uh, the country, there are a lot of job openings and a lot of the, you know, uh, the entry position openings. So one could make the argument that, in fact, there, there, is a, there is a need for them. But, you know, we need to make sure we're taking care of our own citizens first. Massachusetts State Representative Peter Durant, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Entity reached out to Governor Healy's office for comment on the claim it's hypocritical for the state not to take care of their own and the question about where housing migrants and private residences would end, but we haven't heard back yet. And still to come, we have analysis on the narrative surrounding the death of the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Releasing radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Japan says it'll be doing this continually for the next three decades. Those stories after the break. It's good to have you back with us. Now an update on the plane crash that's believed to involve the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Flight tracking data shows the plane was flying smoothly until a sudden drop about 30 seconds before crashing. Some sources say the plane may have been shot down, but the Pentagon says there's no reason to suggest a missile was to blame. 
Russia's President Putin has offered condolences to the families of Wagner employees who died in the plane crash Wednesday, adding that Russia's investigative committee will be conducting an investigation. Meanwhile, Ukraine's President Zelensky has denied his country had any involvement in the crash. Several narratives have emerged following the plane crash. NTD explores these with Wagner expert Pearl Matibe, who is a State Department and White House correspondent with the Premium Times. Joining us now is Pearl Matibe, State Department and White House correspondent with Premium Times. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Pearl. Russian President Vladimir Putin called Prigozhin's short-lived mutiny treason, and he has stated that he would avenge it. That said, what can you tell us about the uncertainty surrounding Prigozhin's purported death? Um, I think it's very interesting that we have Putin now wanting to avenge uh, uh, Prigozhin. This is a relationship that has been developing over 10 years. We're in 2023 now. Let's just remind audiences that. The relationship between Putin and Prigozhin didn't even start in 2014. This started with uh, actual cell phone phone calls from Prigozhin's own personal cell phone, which were verified by Bellingcott, which is an authoritative source. So uh, 10 years now, uh, we know Putin values loyalty. He would have viewed Prigozhin as having betrayed him. Um, so, yes, this is very uh, interesting to have him uh, say this now. But uh, Putin right now wants to uh, stay put in Africa. I think uh, he already mentioned and spoke, addressed the African leaders at the BRICS summit that he is going nowhere in Africa. Um, but I think since there are so many narratives right now, people trying to get a grip of what happened, who was behind this, and the history of how Putin has gotten rid of some of his critics. And Pearl, what have your sources told you about the veracity of those narratives? Well, we know for sure that uh, history tells us and has informed us that uh, people have died or disappeared because they were critical of President Vladimir Putin. And so, even though people may want to go and default to that sort of a narrative, okay, that this he ordered this and this is how this happened, um, there are also one reason. Why would he do it now, right? There's a sense that the hand of the Minister of Defense is at play here. It also could be that maybe Putin didn't even know, right? Uh, or didn't didn't order this. This is another narrative, but that maybe one of the elites or somebody in within the Minister of Defense could have ordered it. Yes, and Pearl, mass men claiming to belong to the Wagner Group have reportedly warned the Kremlin to, quote, get ready for us. Do you suspect that this is a real message? It could be a message because what we have been seeing is that the Russian Minister of Defense and the Kremlin have been trying to destroy the Wagner Group after the mutiny, right, to try and weaken Prigozhin's own authority since that rebellion. So assassinations are not new in terms of uh, things in, in Russia. Um, and so um, it would not come as a surprise to me. I think what we need to be careful, though, is that because there are multiple concurrent narratives trying to explain what happened, um, and anything coming out of the Kremlin, you really do need to kind of analyze and see what's happening here. The people, the bodies that were taken from the crash site were 10. Three of those were crew members. The other seven were senior high-ranking Wagner commanders, right? Um, and so it could be that, you know, decapitating the leadership of Wagner might have been a plan here.
Promotive with the Premium Times. Thank you so much for providing us with that information. You're welcome. And now some short headlines from around the world. Google, Facebook, TikTok, and other big tech companies operating in Europe must comply beginning today with one of the most far-reaching efforts to clean up what people see online. The European Union says the new rules are designed to keep users safe, but they also have sparked concerns over censorship. Platforms could face billions in fines if they don't comply. In Paris, operators of e-scooters are clearing them off the streets ahead of their complete ban in a week's time. Parisians voted in a referendum back in April by almost 90% to reject rented e-scooters. Last year, Paris registered 459 accidents with e-scooters, including three fatal ones. Greek firefighters battling a major wildfire in northeastern Greece have recovered another body. That brings the death toll from wildfires this week to 21. 18 bodies that were recovered are suspected to be migrants who crossed into the country recently from Turkey. Japan is releasing radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean. Is it safe? Japan says the water won't cause significant harm. Not everyone is convinced. Entity's Colin Fredrickson has more. Japan has started releasing slightly radioactive wastewater into the Pacific Ocean from the Fukushima nuclear plant. We plan on releasing continuously 24 hours a day. Japan says it needs to do this because its storage tanks are full. China isn't happy about this. An extremely selfish and irresponsible action that ignores international public interests. China firmly opposes and strongly condemns this. Japanese protesters are worried this will cause big problems in the future. I feel angry and unconvinced. Why, even to this extent, doesn't this country listen to our voices and the voices of the fishermen? Protesters march through the streets, chanting, don't pollute the sea and don't release the radioactive polluted water. They're going to keep releasing the water for more than 30 years. I really want to stop it as soon as possible, even by a day. The International Atomic Energy Agency has agreed to Japan's plan. It said the release meets international standards and that harm to people and the environment would be negligible. Critics say the risks have not been fully assessed. Japan plans on releasing 1.3 million tons of the treated water into the Pacific Ocean over the course of three decades. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. Despite the protests, scientists generally believe the water is safe. Nuclear facilities, including those in China, Korea, and Taiwan, have been discharging treated radioactive wastewater into the oceans for decades. France releases almost 500 times more than Japan. And after the break, more on former President Donald Trump. We take a look at some political analysis of the presidential candidate's indictment. And the DOJ says SpaceX has discriminated against refugees and asylum seekers by not hiring them. It's taking the rocket and satellite company to court. We'll be back with that for you in just a moment.
Welcome back. We're continuing with the hot topic of Trump's Georgia case. Nearly 100 supporters and about a dozen opponents gathered in front of Fulton County Jail in Atlanta ahead of Trump's booking. We have reactions to the former president turning himself in. This is America. We don't have walls up. We actually allow people to question an election. We are able to audit. We are able to um, live freely. And the Democrats have done that as well. Our government, <laughs> literally right before everyone's face, weaponized the justice system. This is crazy. It's sad, and I never thought I would see it in my life. This is great. This Why? is awesome. Because <laughs> it shows that even if you have all this money and all the power, and you're the most powerful person in the United States, you are not above the law, and you are not above consequences. It's great. I happened to be here, and then I thought about what was happening tonight. I could not not come by to support my President Trump. That man brought our economy up. He got us out of wars. Because this country is too important to lose. We have to have Donald Trump. It's Trump or death. Continuing with former President Donald Trump, entities Daniel Monahan has reactions to and analysis of the indictment. Representative Ken Buck believes the DA's office in Fulton County overcharged the case under RICO. RICO refers to crimes involving a criminal organization. And by having 19 defendants, Buck says District Attorney Fonnie Willis is counting on 15 or 16 of the defendants making guilty pleas and testifying against Trump. I'm not sure that's going to happen in a case like this. This is not, um, you know, RICO has to do with organized crime. Um, if this is a crime at all, I think it's a disorganized crime, and I don't think these folks are, are willing to testify against the former president of the United States. Cornell professor William Jacobson doesn't believe the RICO charge is warranted, but if it were, he says it should have been brought a year ago. He called the charges complete political interference. We should have been through this process. We should not have a major political candidate, the leading candidate so far in the Republican Party, being arraigned on the eve of the primary season. Political journalist Angie Wong says the case is a name, shame, and smear campaign by the district attorney. They're trying to round up all of Trump's troops so that they can no longer uh, investigate what was happening in Georgia in 2020 and for the 2020 election. While Trump attorney Jesse Banal says it's a very dangerous time for the country. Because you see this uh, politicalization of the justice system like we've never seen before in America. Chief investigative counsel to the January 6th committee, Timothy Hafey, says it's troubling that the U.S. has gotten to a point where a former president has a mugshot, but he believes in the process. It's justice. It's the right thing. It's the, what happens when people violate the law and are held accountable. Hafey says Fonnie Willis has laid out a similar case that special counsel Jack Smith has presented. A multi-part intentional plan to disrupt the joint session and prevent the transfer of power. It's Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The Justice Department is suing Elon Musk's SpaceX for not hiring refugees. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the lawsuit alleging discriminatory employment practices. Two. 
The DOJ says SpaceX routinely discouraged asylees and refugees from applying from at least 2018 to 2022 and refused to hire or consider them because of their citizenship status. It says this violates the Immigration and Nationality Act. It also alleges that SpaceX wrongly claimed it could only hire U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents in job postings and public statements. The Justice Department cited a June 2020 post on Twitter by CEO Elon Musk that said, U.S. law requires at least a green card to be hired at SpaceX as rockets are advanced weapons technology. Musk says the lawsuit against SpaceX constitutes the weaponization of the DOJ for political purposes. In a post on X, Musk said the company was told repeatedly that hiring anyone who was not a permanent resident of the United States would violate international arms trafficking law, which would be a criminal offense, adding that the company couldn't even hire Canadian citizens. Musk addressed the hiring issue during a 2016 speech at the International Astronautical Congress in Mexico, saying that a normal work visa isn't sufficient for work on rocket technology considered an advanced weapons technology unless you get special permission from the Secretary of Defense. Musk added at the time that the laws do not apply at Tesla, where he said about 25 to 30 percent of its engineering staff was from outside the country. Aerospace engineer Tom Mueller reacted on X, saying, so if I let a non-U.S. citizen see our rocket hardware, I go to ITAR jail. But if I don't hire a non-U.S. citizen, I get sued by DOJ. Got it. The DOJ seeks what it calls fair consideration and back pay for asylum recipients and refugees who were deterred or denied employment at SpaceX due to the alleged discrimination. The lawsuit also seeks civil penalties and policy changes to ensure SpaceX complies with the federal non-discrimination mandate going forward. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, fast fashion competitors Shein and Forever 21 joining forces. NTD Business host Don Ma has more on the deal and the controversy behind it when we come back. Good to have you back with us. Fashion retailers Shein and Forever 21 are going into business together. That's according to a partnership agreement announced Thursday. We're bringing in Entity Business host Don Ma to discuss this. Don, it's great to have you with us. Good morning. Good morning, Kevin. Can you tell us more about the partnership to start? Yeah, sure, uh, Kevin. Uh, first of all, it seems like uh, the partnership could pave the way for Shein to sell Forever 21 dresses, jeans, accessories on its website. And, and perhaps eventually Shein shops could actually operate inside Forever 21 stores. Um, so this is what the company said, and the Wall Street Journal first reported this. So now the Chinese-founded Shein will acquire about one-third interest in Forever 21's operator, and in turn Forever 21's operator will also become a minority shareholder in Shein. So the purpose of the deal is basically to expand Forever 21's distribution on Xi'an's online platform, which, by the way, Kevin, has some 150 million online users. And, of course, the, the reverse is also true for Xi'an. Well, you know what they say, birds of a feather stick together. And it's interesting that these two are partnering up because it just so happens that both Xi'an and Forever 21 have faced strong criticism surrounding their fast fashion production. 
Yeah, yeah, you're right, Kevin. Um, but more notably with Xi'an, the, the company has faced allegations of you know, using forced labor from the Uyghur population, uh, mainly whether its goods contain uh, cotton from China's Xinjiang region. You know, on top of that, there has also been allegations of unethical labor practices at its production facilities in China. Uh, Xi'an reportedly shortened a three-week production process to just three days for some items, Kevin. And, and it's, it's, a, it's being accused of making thousands of Chinese workers work, work up to 12 hours a day, and in some cases, over 75 working hours per week. Well, thanks for letting us know, Don. That's definitely something consumers need to be aware of when they make their purchasing decisions. So, do you have anything else for us? Yeah, sure. For the second time this month, Wells Fargo is having issues with their banking system. Um, this is according to Down Detector. This is a platform tracking various websites, uh, website outages. Um, so over 700 users reported problems ranging from transferring funds to declining ATM cards. The bank, the bank stated that it's working to resolve the issue, so we'll see. And as well, an update on the Hollywood strike. Warner Brothers says they're, they're pushing back on the release of their big budget movie, Dune part two uh, from November to March. So the ongoing actor strike uh, means the stars of the movie are unavailable to promote it until the strike is settled. Uh, this decision to delay release, it's going to hurt theater, theater cha chains trying to recover from a three year slump. Um, but in other news, Subway is changing hands. The sandwich chain agreed to sell itself to private equity firm York Capital. Uh, the deal put an end to almost six decades of its private family ownership. So according to the Wall Street Journal, York's uh, final bid was $9.6 billion. Subway put itself up for sale in February. Uh, the company had uh, seen its sales decline over the past decade. Um, but that's all from me this morning, Kevin. Yeah, and we're seeing some of those ripple effects from the Hollywood strike. So Don, host of Entity Business, thank you. Thanks, Kevin. And coming up, we take a look at how two Idaho brothers turned old storage silos into a luxurious and cozy setting after the break. It's great to have you back. After being stranded for three days on an uninhabited island, a man's ordeal ended after the U.S. Coast Guard rescued him. The island lies between Florida, Cuba, and the Bahamas. The rescue came after a Coast Guard ship spotted the man firing flares. An airplane was sent to drop him a radio and essential supplies. Once radio communication was established, the man said he'd been stuck there for three days after his sailboat became disabled. He was found to be in good health. A Coast Guard official said this is exactly why boaters must have proper safety equipment on board. Without seeing the flare, the case may not have had a successful outcome. And when thinking of grain silos, style and comfort don't immediately come to mind. For two brothers from Idaho, however, they do. They've transformed the silos into something truly remarkable and comfortable. Let's take a look. Adam and Wes Wixom were initially just looking to buy silos for storage space on their farm. Soon, however, a unique idea came to the brothers' minds. We had always spend every Sunday at my parents' house. Um, all the families would get together and 
What really kind of transpired after that is my dad was the first one to say, let's put one of those grain bins in the back of my house for storage. So Wes here started out helping him put it up and then we got involved. And once he got it up, we, we've always been into unique uh, real estate things. We, we like to, you know, A-frames and, and, and barn houses and whatever. And so we started seeing a couple of the silo houses, little ones. And so we, we told my dad, you should cut windows and a door in and make it living space, not, you know, space for storage. And then that's where the idea came from. Inspired in 2018, the family's project took shape during the pandemic. Faced with high costs for materials and a lot of red tape, the brothers persisted. But eventually, they turned the grain silos into cozy and stylish Airbnbs. Now the family business is thriving, providing a unique experience for visitors from out of state, as well as locals. The cool thing is, is a lot of our guests, we offer one night minimums on our small bins. And that's because a lot of the locals around the area, they want to come and enjoy the hot pools that are near us that are two miles away and then they want to just stay one night and then go. And so we did that and that's been really popular and we get a lot of reviews um, and uh, a lot of comments sent to us that say, our kids and us loved it because we see these all the time or my husband's a farmer and we own these, but we've never stayed in one. Adam says visitors are often surprised at the pleasant temperature in the bins, which are well insulated and temperature regulated. Some of the funnest reviews are people are thinking it's gonna be super hot because it's the middle of summer, it's 98 degrees outside and they walk in and the bin is 70 degrees. And they're just not expecting it because they, they've been inside a hot grain bin before or been around you know, a, a metal shop. And so a lot of our, our reviews are, man, it was so awesome to walk in. Moreover, the concept has now caught on and even the county is on board with it. The brothers are now planning to expand with a new project right next door. So actually, we just got all of our drawings back and we're in the works uh, building another project right next to the bins. Uh, and it's going to be a, if you're familiar with barn dominiums or the barn houses, they're becoming popular. Uh, it, yeah, we're, we're going to build one of those and we're going to put a grain bin with it and give our little twist to that. For now, though, the brothers are focusing on tracking down gently used grain bins for upcycling to cater for those who dream of similar projects or simply seek storage solutions. Looks like a good getaway. And that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com, so shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.